1: Emily and I read the Bible and talk about it, record it, so on and so forth, and then you're here with us, we assume, if you're listening to this, right?
0: Yeah, if you could hear this intro. I I just realized, like, every... If you can hear this intro, you're listening to it. <laughs> exactly. Well, I just realized, like, almost every show starts out with us sounding like we just told a joke, because we didn't really tell a joke, but we said something that amused ourselves before we jump into recording. So, I have to wonder how many people wonder what we if they bother to think about what were we talking about before this.
1: So, well, well th- this time was because I had like what, seven misfires on getting the <laughs> the audio recording started. Right. And so, yeah, was, it's never as amusing as you want it to be. So, Yeah.
0: <laughs> of course, we did so. have that wonderful discussion about which songs the name Shy reminded us of because we're weird like that. So,
1: Yeah. We'll let you guess on that one. So, um, that being said, Hushai, that's where we left off. Uh, we're back in Samuel, Second uh, Samuel 17 mm-hmm. is where we're starting out today, and there's There's actually some really interesting things here. Um, I don't know how far we're going to get, but I do have some observations, but it might not make it into this episode (laughs) because it's kind of towards the second half of the chapter, and you know how fast we go. Uh,
0: Yeah, well, and there's so much, and I kept finding myself, like, going off on these random tangents, and, you know, and I just kind of let myself go there because I— I'm finding that I'm feeling more and more comfortable, kind of sharing my stuff and my ideas with people as we go along, because everybody's been so great to like reach out and be encouraging. I got two encouraging messages before five o'clock this morning. I mean, how awesome is that? Um, if you know, must you ever, be nice. Uh, it, it, it really is. <laughs> it
1: really is. <laughs> I, although it, I, I, I was, I was still in bed at five o'clock, so uh, those would have gone to the the voicemail. Uh,
0: I tried to text you at 8, and it said that um, you had your notifications turned off. But anyhow. Did it tell you that? Yes, That's it funny. did. Yes, new new updates on the phone. So I thought that was interesting. But okay, 2 Samuel 17. Uh, we're starting on the first verse, which is fun. You know, actually get to start an episode at the beginning of a chapter. Kind of rare. Uh, but this, this chapter kind of opens with a question as far as translation. Uh, because... In the ESV, it says "moreover," that that's the first word of the chapter,
1: and I, I do think. Okay, side note: mm-hmm. this is just me being nitpicky. <laughs> I do think it's funny that, that the ESV is supposed to be a newer translation that's like easier to read, um, and then you've got this. But word, they still moreover. use like "moreover," <laughs> who that you know basically people only ever use that in very formal speech. So um, it's that's the- just me. Being amused
0: well, yeah, I well, the problem is sometimes in Hebrew, it's really hard to tell what the what the passage of time is between one event yeah. and the other just because of the verb structure, so you don't know if it's like boom 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 consecutive. Consecutive events, or if there's like something happened, and then a year went by, and then this happened. Yeah, you know. And well, I
1: think yeah, I think we kind of covered that a couple episodes ago.
0: (laughs) Yeah, we actually brought that up. And so the the thing is, we don't know with chapter seventeen. This is where the question is: Did this conversation that's getting ready to take place? Did it occur immediately after Absalom had raped David's concubines, or was there some passage of time? did it happen before where does well, it and, fall and
1: also yeah well and also to me it just i i don't you typically and i could be just misunderstanding the use of it but typically i don't ever use the words more the word moreover to refer to passage of time i typically kind of mean that as like compounding a problem
0: almost concurrently happening with in the moment yeah and kind of the additional yeah. that that one little extra piece of the problem that you didn't want to deal with but it's here um uh,
1: yeah and, and which to me has like nothing to do with time so i that's part of the reason it seems really weird to me because i mean the jps just says and
0: and yeah and that's pretty much what the hebrew has and um and then there's syntax and all of this other stuff that we can get into, but you know that's the stuff that's still that's so far nerd related that I think everybody would be sleeping by the time I got through with it. but the the point is it, it's the idea that there is a debate among scholars exactly when this happened. And so we don't really know the timing. We just know that in this moment when Absalom has come into Jerusalem, David's outside the city now he's on the run from Absalom that during that time, not only did we have the rape of David's concubines, we also have this conversation. And so the the other problem that this provides is, you know, Ahithophel, who this conversation is about, he is the counselor. He is the wise man. He's the person that people go to and ask questions. He, He is not somebody who's supposed to volunteer things of his own initiative. that That's kind of outside of his role. So the fact that now he's saying, hey, this is what we need to do, kind of makes you wonder what's going on here. Why is he volunteering to give a plan when he specifically wasn't asked, or at least we aren't shown that he wasn't specifically asked. So there's some question about whether or not he just volunteers this and volunteers to do all the things we're going to talk about or did Absalom say, hey, what do I do? need to do next? Because mm. there's some pretty big implications on whether or not this was something that Absalom asked him to do, or whether he just volunteered. And one of the reasons why people think he may have just volunteered, notice the language of the next few verses, because it's, I will, I will, me, let me. It, it's all first person. It all talks about Ahithophel's own actions, not Absalom's, and and so there seems to be this little indication, this this kind of hint that maybe what Ahithophel is getting ready to suggest isn't so much serving Absalom as it is serving himself. So verse 1, "...moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, let me choose 12,000 men, and I will rise up and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged, and throw him into a panic, and all the people with him." I will strike only the king, and I will bring all the people back to you as the bride comes to her husband. You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. So he's basically saying, you know, cut off the head. If you kill David, everything else is going to be fine. The people are going to return to you. They're going to accept you as their king, and this is the the appropriate course of action. But most of all, he's proposing that he does everything, that Ahithophel does this attack, that he performs and leads this attack. And there's two possible reasons. So the more generous reason would be that he is truly attempting to solidify Absalom's reign, that by taking David out and leading the attack himself, he is actually keeping Absalom safe, and he's helping Absalom really you know, grab hold of that title, and it's not going to be threatened by the fact that David is still alive. That's the kinder, gentler reading of this if you can have one <laughs> on this passage. The sure. the second is he's trying to become the new national hero. Now, the problem with that is in this time period, if you were the one who killed the king, you were the one who took the king's place. So by becoming the new national hero, this could actually be an attempt to displace Absalom from the throne. He could be making a power grab of his own. And so there's some question. And and the writer Samuel has actually already set this up as a kind of pattern. If you remember back when Joab was attacking Rabbah and he sends that messenger back to David and basically says, get your butt out here so people don't think this is my win, my win that people don't think I'm trying to take credit for your victory. So you need to be here when the city actually falls. So the writer has said, hey, this is the pattern for this time and this culture. So if we we take those two stories together, there's some hints that possibly Ahithophel is being a little bit uh, devious here. Now, the text does not explicitly say that. We're never told explicitly what um, Ahithophel's motives are. And there's no singular translation or tradition that will explain it. The reader's really left to speculate. But whatever the the reason is, Ahithophel is betraying that his motives for willing to being willing to go after David this way are very personal. I mean, you don't you don't speak this way unless it's something that impacts you or has great value to you personally. All of those eyes. I, I will. I will. I will. It betrays a very um, personally vested interest in what's going on here, and it really only to me it only makes sense if we're looking at Ahithophel from the perspective of him being Bathsheba's grandfather. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, to to me, it's just it's just more evidence is what it winds up being, even though her name isn't kept in the story. And I think that's the other interesting thing in these stories. Women so often are kind of like the tipping point. They're they're the 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 fuse that sets off these situations. But then they get lost in the story. Their names fade. They they aren't included. Uh, We may not hear from them during the events that you know they kind of instigated or were a part of, and then uh, the instigating instances that they were a part of. um, But then the men just they just take it and they run and it's like they totally forget about the women and so i think that's actually part of what plays into why absalom was able to do what he did to david's concubines he forgot what started off everything which was wanting to protect his sister from having experienced a rape and so you know this is this is pretty um standard in the Bible that we see these stories like this where where women are part of the instigating events and then they just kind of fade from the scene while the men get caught up in their own quest, you know, to do whatever they need to do in order to prove that they're big manly men. Um, and, you know, I'm not trying to be down on men here. I'm just saying that sometimes that men do stupid things in these stories and, you know, women do stupid things in these stories too. So I'm not just blaming men, but sometimes when egos get involved, Uh, then there's an issue. So, yeah, I don't, you you can save your letters. I'm not even going to try to defend (laughs) anything that I'm saying women don't do this. I'm not. I'm just saying that this seems to be a pattern. So verse four, and the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. So right off the bat, we've got this very troubling phrase, uh, right in Absalom's eyes, or, you know, anytime we've got something right in a human being's eyes, we almost automatically should know it's not right. There's nothing right about what's being said. And it's also the right to the elders of Israel. And if we remember who the elders of Israel were, I mean these are the guys who started the events that led to Shiloh, the the civil warfare um between Benjamin and the rest of the nation. This is not somebody you want making decisions. They have not proven to be trustworthy throughout the book of Judges, throughout the book of Samuel to this point. And so Mm. immediately we should be going, wait a minute, this this is not the best thing to happen here. And it's very interesting that a lot of Jewish writers, a lot of the sages and rabbis went to a lot of trouble and wrote a lot of literature trying to explain why this wasn't the Sanhedrin. And they they claim that this is a fake Sanhedrin that was put in place by Absalom to replace all the elders who stayed loyal to David and fled with him. Now, this this argument, they have a number of problems. Uh for no, number one, there's no actual reference to the Sanhedrin. Uh, there's no specific word. That word's not there in the Hebrew. You're obviously not going to find it in the in the English. There's some that claim that the Sanhedrin was not formed until two to three hundred years before Jesus was born, and that's a very early date. Others argue that it does go back to Moses when Jethro um, counseled Moses to to gather up the judges and to uh, you know assemble a group of men who could actually help him with the the duties of leading this nation. And so where you put the placement of when the Sanhedrin was developed kind of depends on how you want to view things. Uh, I, I think overall what we are seeing is there is a reference to a ruling body of elders who weren't necessarily in charge once there was a king, but they were still Expected to support the king and help carry out the functions of the kingship, and be able to um, offer some advice and guidance. And so mm-hmm. they, we see that in the rest of the books. Now, whether you know, like I said, they're the Sanhedrin or not, that's up for debate. What I do think is interesting, if we do run with the Sanhedrin analogy, let, let, let's just say that okay, it's this is correct. This is a Sanhedrin, fake or not. It is a Sanhedrin type of counsel. It does provide us with a very interesting parallel to Jesus being condemned to death by the Sanhedrin. And so when you consider Jesus the Messiah, and now we have David the Messiah back at this point, you do have another one of those moments where a, a type can be present. And mm-hmm. so, um, not like, again, not explicit in the text, uh, but we do have traditions, multiple traditions that would point us to even considering that idea. And I think sometimes it's okay if we don't have something you know explicitly spelled out in the Bible, but we do have these multiple traditions that would point us towards thinking about things in certain ways or make, just asking the question. It's okay to entertain the question. Uh, do we wanna build a theology on it? That's where you wanna get careful. But to ask the questions of the text and to think about what the traditions teach us can actually cause us to to experience a little bit more intimacy and a little bit more immediacy with what's being presented to us it, and it keeps it from being something abstract and out there because now we're we're digging in and we're wrestling with it. So no matter what we've got going on here whether this is the Sanhedrin or it's just a ruling body of elders there there are some parallels and it it doesn't have to be the same word all the time as long as we have the same concepts. And we're going to talk more about that later with another issue because I had so much fun yesterday putting all this together. So anyway, okay. verse, verse five, then Absalom said, call Hushai the archite also and let us hear what he has to say. Now, this is really odd. I mean, this is really, really odd if you think about it. Ahithophel's the advisor. This is the guy that David and Absalom both esteem. This is the guy that the writer of Samuel described as, you know, when you saw his counsel, it was like seeking, you know, consulting the word of God. This guy mm-hmm. is important. And then there's Hushai, who Absalom really didn't trust. You know, is this the loyalty you show to your friend? Um, this is a guy that Absalom's got some doubts about, and now he's calling Hushai to give an opinion. And I think because it is so odd, we, we need to pause and really consider why would Absalom do such a thing? Because he doesn't need any more counsel. He doesn't need any more guidance. He, he's he got it. And one possible reason is that maybe where it said it, this was right in Absalom's eyes doesn't mean that he liked it. He just simply recognized it as a legitimate military tactic. And mm-hmm. so he accepted that this could be a good plan. But there are aspects of it that Absalom could have found troubling, and, and it's going to make a lot of sense when we think about Absalom's relationship to David. Um, not only that, you know, here we have Ahithophel, who has already betrayed David. He he already knows that Ahithophel cannot be trusted. We, we've we got this really elaborate speech where Ahithophel seems to to seem just a little too ready to help out. And it could be that Ahithophel's speech actually forced Absalom to think for a moment about the fact that in order for Absalom to stay on the throne, he'd have to have his father killed. Either he would have to, <clears throat> excuse me, Either he would have to have his father killed, or somebody else was going to have to kill David for Absalom. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, we we typically don't get a second opinion if we like the first one. Typically, if we like the first one, we just just stop there. And now we're going to find out that there's a theological reason for Absalom to seek out Hushai's uh, opinion in verse 14, but we aren't quite there yet. It's a now, little dry Ahithophel,
1: today. <laughs> no, it's no Ahithophel. You said he was one of David's mighty men. Mm-hmm. Um, is he? Is he mentioned earlier in the story uh, while David was on the run from Saul? No, and that's actually a really good point.
0: And we'll just go ahead and go there. There is um, we we don't have the names of everybody who was with David, and we definitely do not have Ahithophel's names mentioned specifically. And because of this, there is a, tr- a tradition that grew up uh, around these two characters that Ahithophel, and to, for this tradition to be true, then he would not be Bathsheba's grandfather. He wouldn't be old enough to be her grandfather. That uh, It says that Ahithophel was actually born during the reign of David and that he was actually quite a young man. Where Hushai was an old man. He had been on the run with David during those times of trying to escape from Saul. And because Hushai had been with David, that's the reason why Absalom is willing to listen to him. Because Ahithophel had not been with David, Hushai had. So yeah, I I don't know how much credence to give that. Um, Like I said, I lean towards you know Ahithophel being Bathsheba's grandfather. I I, it may just be because I like it. I think it makes a lot of sense. I think it explains a lot of things. But uh, if it's not true, then that could be a possibility that Ahithophel was fairly new to David's circle which would explain why he'd be quicker to to betray David than Hushai was so you know it, it, a lot of this stuff does come down to speculation and just asking these questions and i think as long as we're we're careful not to assert more than what we can see on the page we're still in pretty good shape so right verse 6 when Hushai the Archite came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, "Thus has Ahithophel spoken. Shall we do as he says? If not, you speak." So what follows is the most, is the longest and most significant speech of Absalom's story, and Hushai's brilliance really just kind of shines through during this speech. Uh, he has a gift for what Brueggemann calls a double speak, and you're going to hear a lot of it in this speech. Uh, verse seven, Hushai said to Absalom, this time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not right, is not good. So this time, that little phrase is important, this time. Every other time before, this guy's been dead on the money. Uh, He's been such a great counselor up to this point, and aren't you so glad you had him to listen to? It's kind of the implication that, you know, all the other advice is great. This time, this one time mm. is the exception, and so there's a little bit of flattery with it. There's not an outright uh, rebuttal of what uh, Ahithophel has to say, and so Hushai begins the speech by not becoming adversarial. Now, I think that's a huge lesson in and of itself. A lot of times, it, and I'm just going to go on a little bit of a rabbit trail, not in my notes. You know, if you go online, you go on Facebook, you go on Twitter, and Somebody says something that somebody else disagrees with, and you know, not that you or I would ever do this. I mean, there's that that mm. that temptation just to to punch back and go, "That's wrong," right. and and when we do that, we cut off the conversation. The person we're talking to cannot hear us; they cannot even begin to entertain what we're saying. And, and I think who's showing us right here. Sometimes you got to know how to phrase things. You know, this is. Sure. One of the lessons Dad taught us, so you can say anything you want to, as long as you know how to say it. And I think that's kind of becoming a lost art in our society. But it absolutely is. What's <laughs> that? <laughs> Dad used to say, "You could tell a woman for her time would stand still, and she'd be flattered. But you tell her the face like that would stop a clock, and she'd be mad." I mean, it, it's kind of the same thing. But who should I he launches into this full psychological attack. I mean, he is on it. He he plays with Absalom's larger than life image that he has of David as his father. Uh, he he plants these little seeds of doubt by hinting at the legends of David and you know, David's kind of own warrior mythology that had been built around him. I mean, Think about the stories that had to have been told about David, especially after the battle with Goliath, and that one alone. I mean, we love a good story, and when you can't go back and validate and verify facts, and everything's word of mouth, there had to have been so many stories that sprung up around David that maybe only had a little tenuous connection with the truth. But then Ahithophel, he he plays on Absalom's ego. It's just. It's great. And then he offers a plan that's going to elevate Absalom higher than even David. And so he doesn't just give Absalom these reasons to turn loose of the original plan. He gives this very tempting plan in replacement. And he also very carefully skirts the issue about whether or not David himself, the single individual, has to die. I mean, this guy is good. So verse, mm-hmm. verse eight, he says, you know that your father and his men are mighty men. So you know, you know better than Ahithophel. You've lived with him. You, you spent your whole life with him. You know what a great warrior is, he is. So here in this moment, he's both planting that seed of doubt, but he's doing it in a way that elevates Absalom's ego. You know, you're smarter than Ahithophel, And we know how smart you think Ahithophel is. Well, I'm telling you, you're smarter than him. So there are the most feared warriors in all the land. You know what they're capable of. You, you aren't going to make this mistake of underestimating them. They are enraged or literally bitter of spirit. And we already know that in Samuel, when the writer uses the word bitter of spirit, That this is a great motivator for people to take action and to take great risk. This is what drove Hannah to that temple. So there's Mm -hmm. good reason to think that this would have been a kind of a common idea around this phrase. That if somebody's bitter of spirit, they're in desperate straits. They're in dire straits. They're going to do whatever it takes to survive. So he says, like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Now. Hushai knows the power of a metaphor. That's one of the signs of wisdom in, um, in Hebrew literature is the ability to use a metaphor and use it well. So here's this painting of a mama bear who somebody has taken her cubs. We all this is such a well-known metaphor. We still use it today. Mm-hmm. When we talk about mama bears. So the other thing he's doing is he, he's plucking at some memories. He's plucking at some of these stories that, that Absalom would have known, but he's doing it without, it, it's very insidious. It, 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 he's just kind of getting them in there without making Absalom confront them head on. Here's the thing about a great or a big idea. If you make somebody confront an idea head on, that stops the conversation. But if you can call to mind various elements and att- excuse me, attributes, of different situations and stories that start to kind of play in the background of their mind, they will actually pick this apart with their subconscious and and accept certain ideas faster than a full-on frontal assault. So when he mentions this bear, what do we think of? Well, we go back to that first conversation with Saul you know, I've killed bears, I've killed lions. I, this is how strong I am. That's David saying, hey, this is what I've done. And so by bringing up the the bear here, and later on he's going to talk about lions, he's actually bringing again these stories that would have followed David, stories that Absalom would have heard as a young boy and as a man living in Israel. These are things that people would have immediately Recounted over and over again when they were talking about David's personal story. So he goes on to say, besides, he is an expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. So this is the reason why Ahithophel's plan is flawed. Your dad's an expert in war. He's not going to make that rookie mistake. This is not how he acts. This is not what a good warrior does. And you know he's a great warrior. Why do you know he's a great warrior? Because you know all the stories and you've lived with him. So um um Hushai is really just being very very subtle but very effective in his speech because even though he's not saying a whole lot, the words he says that they, they they have a lot of impact. They have a lot of punch. So first hmm. nine. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits and in some, in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall, at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, there has been a slaughter among the people that who follow Absalom. So in other words, people don't have faith in you like they do your father. They're automatically going to credit him with a victory, even if he doesn't win, because they don't trust you to win the way they do your father. So you've got to be smarter. And He's also using some more key terms here with the pits. When the, the last time we encountered this term, another big, big story in the history of Israel. The, the people of Israel were so afraid of the Philistines, they were hiding in pits. They were hiding in cisterns. And this is when Jonathan, when he went out with his armor bearer and confronted the Philistines on his own. And so there's this little, another little hint that, you know, small armies, even small armies like the ones with your father, they don't always win. Numbers don't count for anything in, as far as in warfare in the Bible. Numbers don't mm-hmm. mean victory. And so there's this little idea of being hit here by um, by Hushai. I keep wanting to mix up the name, so I'm having to pause and get the right one. Uh, Hushai's saying, you know, remember this. Remember the fact that when people who hide in pits, sometimes they're the ones who win. And this, again, would have been a mythology that grew up in Israel where everyone would have known these stories. And, you know, this is the whole idea is to to shake Absalom from his center. It's to get him off of his footing so that whenever Hushai steps back in with the next step, Absalom's ready, and he's relieved. He could. Oh, I can feel safe. I can feel secure now because now that I've had all this doubt floating around in my brain, now that I've got something solid to hang on to, now I can move mm-hmm. forward. So he, the other really brilliant part here is that he is um, Hushai is actually crediting David with a tactic that uh, we don't know that it was ever used. But it is it is really good in the idea that when the people cry out because there's a battle, that automatically the credit's going to be given to David. And when this has happened, and you know, even remember going back to the story of the pits, the Philistines automatic, automatically assumed that like several of the Israelites had had jumped up and joined Jonathan when it was really mm-hmm. just Jonathan. And what did they do? They wound up fighting themselves. And so we don't know if David used this technique, but definitely it does come into play in several places in the Bible. So verse 10, then even the valiant men, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, so again, that key word there, a little trigger, will utterly melt in fear for all of Israel knows that your father is a valiant man and who and those who are with him are valiant men. So Hushai's presented Absalom with this unwinnable scenario, even if he wins the skirmish, it doesn't matter. David's still going to get credited mm-hmm. with having a victory. Um, you know, and there's little scraps of David's narrative and Israel's history as a nation, kind of, you know, just this hard sell that Hushai's done to, to Absalom. And so this is an attempt to play on Absalom's emotions that, that, fear of his father, his father being larger than life. And we know that Absalom has that already in his mindset. Why? Because when he killed Amnon, he fled. He went to grandpa's house. He was scared of daddy. I mean, we did this as kids. (laughs) If we knew we'd done something mom or dad would be upset with, we go to the grandparents' house. Um but this is a dangerous game that that hushai is playing and it makes sense when you do remember that absalom not only did he run from his father he had this huge desperation this this need to reconnect with his father and he he managed to get joab to to actually facilitate a reconciliation or a reunion didn't go right if you gotta remember back a few chapters but remember he even burned down joab's field to get Joab to do this. This is how badly he wanted it. He would have had to have paid for every bit of food that Joab lost in order to make it right under the law. But he was willing to do that because he wanted to see his father. And then during the reunion, you got to go back and remember, it wasn't a father who kissed him. It was the king. And it was just a Mm. political absolution. It was not that reunification of Father and son. It was not the restoration of that kind of of relationship. It was very very much um a very almost cold, distant event, and that seems to have been the moment at least I think that solidified this bitterness in absalom's heart so but <sighs> going on uh Hushai, he doesn't he doesn't stop with with sowing doubt he he realizes that's enough. Uh, he, it's not enough to describe the problem. If all you're doing is describing a problem to someone, you're just a complainer. You're whining. Uh, you you aren't adding anything to the situation because I guarantee you, most people, nine out of ten people, there are some exceptions. When you describe their problem to them, you're telling them what they already know. I mean, <laughs> right?
1: Well, and yeah, I've actually that's that's one of the complaints I hear most from my friends who are readers of a lot of popular Christian books is that, and I've heard this several times, is I feel like they did a really good job of describing the problem, but they didn't offer any reasonable way to, to solve it. Yeah,
0: yeah. I, it's, it's so hard to get a good grasp on what is a good solution. And it, you know, I'm probably guilty of it too. Um, it, describing a problem's easy. It is finding that solution. And and that's why I think Hushai is kind of brilliant because he does describe the problem. He describes the problem very vividly. He, he probably actually does bring up a few points that Absalom wasn't prepared to, to deal with. But then he, he goes on and he offers this solution that's so grandiose in scope and scale that Absalom just can't resist because it is going to make him the hero and a hero that's bigger than David bigger than David, sorry. Right. Verse 11, but my counsel is that all of Israel be gathered to you, not 12,000 like Ahithophel suggests, but all of Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba as the sand by the sea for multitude, and that you shall go in battle in person. So amass this giant army, an army larger than any army that your father ever commanded. Show people what kind of loyalty and dedication you can inspire to to bring people from the end one end of the nation to the other end of the nation from Dan to Beersheba the entirety of the people like sands on the sea that great multitude I mean he's even evoking the the covenantal promises to Abraham here and helping you know Absalom see himself as this great hero of the nation as he's using this. So, you know, he can't appeal to David's legacy, but maybe he can get uh, Absalom to consider the Abrahamic legacy as part of his own. And, you know, you lead them, you take them out, you you be the 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 king and the the one who's going to get all the glory. And so this is, you know.
1: You know, this, <laughs> this, uh, I don't, go ahead and finish your thought. I have something on that I want to just throw out as a question, but go ahead.
0: Okay. Well, you know, I was going to say is Ahithophel's solution was to take the symbolic 12,000, which we automatically know. I mean, you don't have to be a great Bible scholar to know that this is symbolically supposed to represent the entirety of the nation as being behind him. Where Hushai says, no, don't, don't just do it symbolically, do it literally. Make the symbol a reality is what he's saying. And so the fact that that Absalom even would entertain this as a possibility, knowing that David had taken so many of the people from Jerusalem with him that he still, you know, was highly regarded by a number of the people, shows you that Absalom is either he really does believe that David doesn't have as much support as, you know we might have thought he did. And that there's some shaky ties uh going on between David and the kingdom or Absalom's completely in denial and is blinded by the fact of how much this is going to inflate his ego this is going to make his reputation so huge if he can actually carry this off so um
1: we yeah I, it to me to me it kind of seems like a it's almost like a I hate to just harp on <laughs> mega churches but I think that's <laughs> kind of the similar t- temptation that people tend to have whenever they're um, building churches is that oh well, we're gonna get huge numbers of people here and we're gonna because of our vast size we're gonna maybe be able to affect so much change in our city and I think that you know I do think there are mega churches um that I mean churches that technically qualify as mega churches that are doing good things in certain areas right um and, and there are people I believe who are definitely finding Christ there and and are able to work but i I think that the idea you know when you're talking about like, well, let's gather all of Israel in one place. I think some of these mecca churches have this idea that we're oh, we're going to get all of we're gonna get as many Christians as we can in one place and it's it's kind of a similar uh thought process, I think that we're they're kind of following the a backward uh Sometimes following a backward kind of, uh, or worldly kind of uh, mentality, I guess, probably would be the best way Well, to say.
0: and where so often the Bible has shown over and over again, what's effective? It's that almost small strategic strike force, um, you know, <laughs> instead of these overwhelming armies. And, you know, it, because it's not about what can human beings amass, not, not what kind of force can they organize. It, it's about whether God really is with them.
1: And yeah. Well, it, and and the problem is one of the problems whenever you you start amassing groups that large is you start having to rely on programs and slogans to mobilize people, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to being there to support each other. Because let's face it, the most important two of the mo- the two most important things that that Jesus told us to do was love God and love your neighbor, mm-hmm. um, and you know sometimes you know it, it can be really easy to put together a big program and say hey this is how we're loving our neighbor versus walking with your friends and being there through difficult times and then having uh you know shared wisdom with your church and your elders and your more mature christians uh being able to to show hey you know this this person's dealing with this problem. I know it's going to be hard to walk through them. You know, like mm-hmm. you know, just an example. You know, it's hard to walk through somebody with somebody through like a divorce or something like that. You know, we don't want that to happen. But right. you know, but to be able to say, hey, you know, this is this is how things are going on, and you should show them love, keep pointing them to the truth, and and see where things go. But. You know, versus being able to just organize people around a slogan and a program, well, which is way easier than than doing those little things day to day that make lasting impacts.
0: Well, how often have we hidden behind programs? I mean, I, I know I've hidden behind programs. Hey, I'm showing up on Sunday morning. Hey, I'm you know singing the song. Hey, I'm giving my offering. Uh, I, I'm in. I'm part of the program. Everything's gonna be fine with me. And meantime, I'm like in the biggest battle of my faith ever, and how many people actually knew that because I was in the program, so I had to be okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so there were very few people who, when I was in the middle of wrestling with whether or not I even still believed in God, they didn't know because I was hiding in the program. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, and I don't want to bash all programs. You know, we we have to have some kind of organizational system when we have large groups of people. Uh, that's just the way things work. But I think we have to figure out how to stay personal and connected within that and not just get lazy and expect the program to do what we don't want to do. You know, we don't want to get sure. our hands dirty because... Well, you know, I I can show up and sit beside this person at church, but I don't actually have to be involved in what's going on in their lives. And that's not how it works. That's just not how our faith is supposed to ever have worked. And it really irritates me when when we act like that's the epitome of being a Christian. Come on, get real. Jesus didn't sit in the synagogue all day. Yes, he went to the synagogue. Yes, he observed the feast and he went to the temple and he did all the, the right things there. But day to day he was involved with the people that were around him. That's the example right. we're supposed to follow in addition to being a part of whatever programs that we feel called to be a part of. Uh, I will stop grumbling now. Uh, so, <laughs> verse
1: 12. Yeah. Of, well, like, and, and again, not to say that we're perfect in this. We have our t- we we mess it up, too. So yeah. don't, don't feel like we're, <laughs> we're talking to ourselves at times and, and reminding ourselves that... It's something that it's those little things day to day with you know loving your neighbor and being there for people that add up and and spread God's kingdom. Yes, so um, absolutely. That that being said, we should yeah. Let's <laughs> let's get back to the text,
0: verse twelve. So we shall fall upon him. Talking, this is still Hushai talking about David. In the we shall fall upon him in some place where he is to be found, and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground, and. Of, And of him and all the men with him, not one will be left. So, you know, we are going to succeed. We're going to prevail. We're going to fight. You know, rah, 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 sis, boom, ba, whatever. You know, unlike Ahithophel's plan, Ahushai does not really single David out as someone to be killed. Uh, When he talks about possibly confronting David, we go back to this metaphoric language— Absalom's not having to face the ugly, horrible truth that David is going to be slaughtered if there's a battle at this point in time. If the, if they come against David at the wrong time and David's not ready, yes, his father dies. And so he can kind of, you know, separate himself from the gory reality of what it means to kill his own father, because it's hidden behind the flowery language. It's hidden within this talk of multitudes. So, you know, there's, when we make language too large, when we start painting a picture that's just too grandiose, then there is the ability to distance ourselves from it. And that's what Hushai is counting on in this moment. So verse 13, if he withdraws into a city, and then all of Israel, then all of Israel will bring ropes to that city, and we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found. So, I mean, you want to talk about grandiose. I mean, right here. I mean, the idea of just tearing down a city and taking it apart until not even a pebble is left. You know, we go back and we think of Samson, and we talk about Samson and um, Absalom having a connection before. You know, Samson was celebrated for the fact that he ripped the gates off a city. Just that one thing. Not destroying it completely. Mm -hmm. So now not only is um, Hushai holding out the hope that Absalom can lead an army greater than his father, now we're holding out the hope that Absalom can be even bigger and stronger than Samson. And, you know, and Samson was pretty much a mythic being in his own time with all the things that he did. But sure. you know, the whole time that Hushai is talking, I mean, I almost want to have like, you know, the soundtrack, movie soundtrack going on in the back with the drums slowly building, you know, this is, this is how we're going to do it. And, you know, everybody getting pumped up and and ready to go and, you know, all this prestige and victory being held out. And so Hushai offers just the perfect combination of words to get Absalom to just cast aside Ahithophel's suggestion and to accept his own as superior. So because verse 14, we're told, And Absalom and all the men of Israel said the council of Hushai the Archite is better than the council of Ahithophel. This is a massive shift. I mean, Ahithophel, just a few verses before, this is the guy like talking to God. He's almost God like himself. You know, you would expect some kind of debate or discussion about whether or not, you know, Hushai's plan was better than Ahithophel's or was it Ahithophel's superior to Hushai's? There's none of that. It's presented like it is just this immediate yes, this is the right thing to do. And so you would think you kind of almost aren't prepared for how quickly the shift takes. And the narrator actually breaks in at this point, and he tells us why this happens. He says, For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. So um, we're told that none of this is by accident. God had already ordained for this to happen. Now, if we go back to chapter uh, 15, when David prayed, remember, he's leaving the city, and David prayed that the Lord would turn the council of Ahithophel to foolishness. That's immediately when Hushai shows up. That That's when he appears on the scene as if, you know, he is the direct answer to prayer. And it's almost, you know, magical, uh, to, for lack of a better word. But yeah, yeah. You know, what I think stands out for me, and this kind of goes in with what you were talking about earlier about being a part of people's lives and, and actually being a friend that shows up. You know, God saves David, but he doesn't use a burning bush. He doesn't use a parted Red Sea or any of the plagues of Egypt. He uses a friend. This this is the miraculous means of deliverance for David. It's a friend. and. You know this is a friend who who David says you're going to be a burden to me if you if you come out to the wilderness with us you you aren't suited for this you're an old man you you, you know there was some reason that just qualified him as coming you know, being worthy or able to come along with David. but David said, this is what you can do. stay where you're supposed to be. stay in your position, maintain your spot and when there's time to be loyal to me, then you step forward and you know I think that's a huge lesson for all of us because you know, sometimes when you're a friend, and you, you brought up the, the divorce um, example earlier, you, there's a statistics out there that a woman in an abusive relationship, it usually takes her nine attempts, nine attempts to get out. And I'm formulating this on the go because it, things are like clicking right now. Absalom did horrible things, horrible things that, that Hushai had to witness. He had to witness the rape of 10 of David's concubines. He 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 couldn't do anything to stop it. He wasn't consulted on that. He didn't have a voice in that moment. And he stayed there and he watched the you know as the psalm told us the marketplace was being overrun with corruption. He had to witness his own home, his own community sliding into this chaos and all of the, the evil and corruption that, that came along with Absalom's reign. And he had to remain there and remain you know, faithful and loyal to David. And it's because he was willing to do that. And it's kind of like that, that friend who watches that woman who's trying to get out of an abusive relationship and they watch her keep going back to her abuser time and time again, unable to actually help. But the one person that's most important to that woman is the friend who's there on that 10th time. The friend who who's there and has stood by them throughout those nine times given, you know, stood back until they were asked to help and then they were willing to speak. They're willing to to offer the assistance out. And so, you know, I think sometimes it's really overrated, this idea that we've got to have some kind of supernatural intervention. We've got to have some kind of um, divine display or manifestation in order to be effective as Christians, as believers, you Sometimes it really is as simple as being that friend. You know, can can you just can you stand by and see all the awful things happen, maintain your faith, maintain your loyalty, and not run away from it? And I think that's something that we're missing, not just in the church but in society as a whole. Because so often when somebody does something stupid, how often uh, you know we even have memes on Facebook that basically say if somebody's involved in stupid stuff, just write them off. You know, if if they're hurting themselves, step away, step back. Don't don't dirty your hands. You don't need that kind of drama in your life. You don't need that kind of chaos in your life. I mean, how many times have we
1: heard? And, and, and we justify it with the Lord helps those who help themselves, which is which nowhere, is not in the Bible.
0: <laughs> Absolutely not one yeah. verse that says anything like that. But you know, instead we're giving we're we're given the, this beautiful moment of wisdom that is what a friend should do for us. You know, a friend should be by our side, ready to defend us, ready to to protect us uh, and to guide evil away from us. And And we should be willing to do that for other people. And, you know, are we all going to have the wisdom of Hushai? Maybe not. But, um, you know, I wish I did. That would be awesome. But at the same time, there's a a lot to be said about loyalty and you know matter of fact i was in a uh, facebook discussion um where somebody had made the point that i can't remember how it went now but there's this there's this thing going around um several different versions of it that basically uh talks about confusing abuse by the church and there is abuse by the church we don't want to neglect or ignore that that happens um but people confusing the church with God, that God doesn't condone church, any church abusing its members. Okay. That's, that's a truth. Okay. And sometimes we have to be able to forgive and separate the church from God and our thinking, especially a, an abusive church and not confuse the two because, uh it's really hard when the when the person who abuses another person says i'm doing this by the right and the authority given to me by god to see that god isn't the one who abuses us and you know somebody asked me in that discussion what do you do for people who have had that that kind of you know baseball bat this theological baseball bat used against them and at the time I answered, I hadn't even put this part together, but I think it's still fitting, uh, I hadn't put this part together with our, our text today, that sometimes it really is just about being there. It, it really is about what one friend of mine called the, the ministry of presence and, and staying true, and so I think that's just really amazing, but anyhow, sorry, uh just... I think we just give up on people too fast, I, that, I, and that bothers me. It bothers me a lot, and so. Um, but Hushai's plan, the problem with it is it, it it's not a good plan. It, it, it's not a good plan for Absalom. Matter of fact, uh, the Bible tells us that um, Ahithophel's plan was good because. It said specifically, for the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel. Tactically speaking, Ahithophel's plan was superior to Hushai because David was weary. He was weak. Those who were with him were hungry. They were tired. And so, if Absalom had actually followed Ahithophel's advice, there's a pretty good chance, short of divine intervention, that God, I'm sorry, that Absalom would have defeated David in that moment. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Hushai's plan's nothing more than an elaborate fiction designed to bring harm to Absalom. And so that's the really troubling part of this verse, because we have an issue with any time as a society, I'm not not you and me, but as a society, any time that the Bible specifically says... God is designing or God is determining to do harm to someone else. And I think it's really interesting that when this verse comes up, or sorry, when the conversations about genocide and warfare and, you know, all the plagues and things that, you know, we want to blame God for, things that we want to criticize God for, you know, is he's not being caring. He's not being loving. He, He's, you know, betraying our image of what we think God should be. This verse is never brought up. And I think it's really interesting because it is so pointed. It, there's no um equivocation in what's being said here. God specifically sent Hushai to Absalom because God wants to harm Absalom. And so, you know, why don't we talk about this verse in those debates? And I think one of the reasons why critics of the Bible don't bring it up is because Absalom just raped 10 women. He did it publicly. And so we have a really easy time looking at a specific sin by a specific individual, a person, and saying, oh, yeah, they deserve to be punished for that. They deserve to have the full weight of all the consequences for daring to do this, for daring to harm another person. Even in our own day, we would have a hard time finding someone who would legitimately protect a rapist. And so I, I think this is one of the reasons why we don't see this particular verse brought up in those debates, because... I mean it's too easy to just take it apart and go, well, he was a rapist, he deserves whatever God does to him, and so i I really found that to be interesting, and it began this this kind of um backwards working through of the scripture in my mind because there's this this structure within the Bible where we, we begin with these broad universal or global themes you know we have creation of the whole earth we have the flood of the whole earth we have the tower of babel that impacts all the known earth we aren't going to talk about whether any of this should be taken literal literally or not what what i'm focusing on here is the fact that the bible actually places it as events that impacted all the known world and so Mm. then when we go from the these broad categories of the, the creation, the fl- uh, the flood, and then the Tower of Babel, it, it starts to kind of focus in. And it starts to kind of narrow in to the specific individual. And so I just want to give a little quick hint of where we're going because we don't have time to go into all of it. But if we work backwards from Absalom and we take one step back, we're at David and Bathsheba. And we find mm-hmm. that David... You know Absalom's oh, sorry, Absalom is reenacting David's crimes, but he's doing it on a larger scale. Uh David, right. you know David rapes one woman. Absalom rapes ten. David's sins are enacted under the cover of night. Absalom's sins are in broad daylight. David tries to conceal his sins. Absalom makes sure that everyone can see what he's doing. Uh, David heeded the words of a prophet. Absalom is going to heed the words of Ahithophel, or at least at the beginning. Uh, David repents and then Absalom perseveres in his sin and so the stories are really tied together in these very similar you know we got to have the the similar items in order to see what the differences are and so we've got we've got the 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 similarities and the violence against women and the abuse of status and power and then we have the wisdom that comes from first to David through a prophet, somebody who actually speaks the word of God. And then you have this counterfeit of Ahithophel, who is like seeking the word of God. So he's close, but not quite. And then the final split is, is that repentance versus arrogance. And so when you have those, those two stories together, you can see one, not only is this the, the fulfillment of sorry Nathan's prophecy in uh, earlier But we also see how there is a direct link between David and Absalom. And we see that the differences where David's repentance is really highlighted. And so we're going to talk about how, you know, if you start there and that's your first step back, we're actually going to go through several other stories and and see how they play together to reveal a really stunning truth about Absalom, but also about the possibility and the capa- uh, capabilities of all of humanity to to choose which kingdom they represent. And and it's very much on display if you put it all together and you aren't just pulling the, this one story out of context and you see it in the, the totality of the narrative of the Bible. So um, mm-hmm. that's going to be fun. I really hoped we were going to get into that today, but oops. So
1: yeah that's kind of yeah that that's kind of the stuff i was looking at towards the end of the chapter there's some <laughs> really interesting parallels to to pull out of things oh yeah so um yeah but i i think that's probably a good place to break we're kind of between major events mm-hmm. and uh so everyone out there hopefully you enjoyed it and uh had a good time with us um we will be back next week with hopefully the rest of the chapter <laughs> lord willing uh, and, yeah no uh, that's not happening sorry Oh, well, <laughs> with more of the chapter. Anyhow, uh, if you want to be part of the conversation, uh, feel free to hit us up on ravencreeksc.com or ravencreeksc on all the social media. Uh, you can find us there and uh, be part of whatever wild, crazy discussions we're having over here. So in the meantime, we'll see you later. Bye. Bye.
0: than other oddities podcast a raven creek social club production don't forget to follow us on facebook twitter and instagram if you like what you've heard please write us a review on itunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash
1: raven sc as always thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week